Russia has lost. They've lost strategically, operationally, and tactically. And they are paying an enormous price on the battlefield. But until Putin ends his war of choice, the international community will continue to support Ukraine with the equipment and capabilities it needs to defend itself. Most of the uh, dynamic movement back and forth is in generally in the vicinity of Bakhmut. Uh, the Ukrainians are holding. Uh, they're fighting the defense. The Russians, uh, primarily the Wagner Group, are attacking. But there's a what, what I would describe it as is a, a really uh, a, a very significant grinding battle of attrition with very high casualties, especially on the Russian side. Ukrainian tanks on the front lines are running out of ammunition. Commanders say stocks are so low, they now only shoot when they can see their enemy. We use as little ammunition as we can, but still it's disappearing, says a battalion commander codenamed The Saint. Can you stop this Russian offensive? Now we can only hold them off, he says, but nobody knows how long we can keep doing it. Their equipment is just too old. This tank, like most Ukrainian tanks, is about 50 years old, and spare parts are a problem. Ammunition is a major problem because Ukraine isn't making ammunition for these old tanks anymore. They are using the stockpiles that they already have, and those stockpiles are quickly running out. Russia still produces ammunition for its Soviet-era tanks and has huge reserves. But here in Ukraine, tractor mechanics are keeping the old machines running and scavenging from destroyed Russian tanks until help arrives. And it's not just tank rounds. NATO is now warning Ukraine is using so much ammunition of all types that Western allies cannot provide it fast enough with new orders taking up to two years to deliver. An officer here told me it's simple. The longer it takes for ammunition to arrive, the more Ukrainians are killed. Welcome to High Cheese. It's Friday, February 17th, 2023. Again, I go back to my underlying theme about the incompetence of the people that are manning our institutions today. And Mark Milley is a good example. He's totally politicized himself. He's politicized the military. And now he's announcing that Russia has lost a war. And this flies in the face of Russia putting a half a million troops on the Ukrainian border, bringing massive amounts of equipment into the area. And apparently the rumor is there's going to be a spring offensive. But Russia lost, according to Milley. And again, it, it, it's not about competence anymore. It's about framing a story and seeing if you can pull the wool over the people's eyes. And the second part of the cold open, I contrast that with a, a story from NBC saying that Ukraine's running out of ammo. They have no more ammo. They need ammo. So all these commitments from NATO, the United States, they, they didn't realize that Ukraine was going to run out of ammo at some point. So instead of addressing a story about no ammo or knowing that Ukraine has no ammo, he's going to proclaim that Russia lost the war. Again, it's all about the PSYOP. It's all about the narrative. It's all about the story that they can tell the American people. But we're on to them. That's just a disgrace. So they put the Ukrainian people, they put the Ukrainian army into a place where they're going to pull the rug from them because we can't help you anymore. We've got no more ammo. There was a meeting earlier this week. All the ministers of the uh, defense departments of the uh, members of NATO met. And apparently they were just trying to s uh, scrounge up some uh, ammunition for Ukraine. Now, as it was been reported, they were just sitting at a table. Well, who's got uh, 55 millimeter ammo? Who's got uh, shells? Oh, I do. I do. That's not a way to run a war. 
And this is what happens when you have people that are all talk. So, and with that said, there's already realization within the globalist community that this is not going to turn out well for them. And they're trying to form some kind of narrative to get out of this that makes it palatable for the globalists to save face, NATO, the Biden administration to save face. Because they see those half a million troops coming in some point in the spring. Russia's already announced that it's bringing in its air force, too, into the arena. They're going to start using the air force and their air superiority in this. So it's not looking good. So they need to form a narrative that gets them out of this and where they can save face. So one of the people they turn to is Ian Bremmer. Ian Bremmer's uh, the founder of the Eurasian Group, and it's a consulting firm that a lot of the globalists, a lot of the Democrats go to for guidance. We need somebody to set the narrative. So a lot of these people go to Ian Bremmer. So let me go to a clip by Ian Bremmer. I think this is uh, he was being interviewed by CNBC. So let's go to the clip, and then we'll come back and discuss. Um, and uh, Ukraine can lose this war. Right. I mean, the, the extraordinary outpouring of support from NATO is well beyond what anyone would have thought possible, um, whether it's the Germans being able to just cut off Russian energy over the course of 12 months and look like they can do it permanently, or whether it's the United States taking the lead militarily, technologically in protecting the Ukrainians and giving them almost everything that they could use to help courageously defend themselves against the Russians. But will that be true in a year after debt limit crisis in the United States? Will it be true in 2024 with upcoming presidential elections? And we don't know what's going to happen there. The answer is Ukraine can lose. Everyone here needs to understand that Ukraine can lose this war. The big geopolitical challenge is that Russia can't win. I mean, they can win in Ukraine, but they can't win globally. They can't win in terms of NATO because they will still be a pariah. They will still be cut off. NATO will still expand. And for Putin, feeling humiliated, insecure, and in a vastly worse geostrategic position than he was before he invaded, what's he going to do as the world's most powerful rogue state? That's, that's a long-term question that goes well beyond Ukraine. So there you have it. That's the narrative they're working on. Russia can win in Ukraine, but they'll become a pariah state. And NATO's going to continue to expand. Well, let me just uh, mention a couple of things. The, the whole issue that Russia got Russia into the war here is that it was all about Ukraine going into NATO. There was nothing else on the table about any other European country or Eastern European country joining NATO. It was all about Ukraine joining NATO. And if Sweden joins NATO, I don't think Russia really cares. Because it's all about Ukraine. And while we're at it, there's a, there's a problem right now with uh, Sweden and Finland joining NATO. I don't know if you've been following the news. Everybody's trying to make a case that, oh, see, it hurts, it hurts uh, Putin because uh, Finland and Sweden are going to join NATO. Well, Turkey's blocking Sweden right now from joining NATO. So both the Finland and Sweden have put in, been put on the back burner as far as joining NATO. Now, the question is, is Ukraine ever going to join NATO? I don't think they ever will. Because part of the settlement is Ukraine not joining NATO. Because part of any expected settlement with Russia will result in uh, Ukraine not joining NATO. Now, again, there's issues with Turkey, with Sweden, in particular Sweden. And I understand because of the uh, horrific events in Turkey with the earthquake, it's holding things up. But, you know, right now, where, where's, the, uh, where's the NATO expansion? It's all talk right now. May happen, but right now it's just talk. And the other thing that Bremer addresses is that, well, Russia's just going to be a pariah. You know what the West did? You know what NATO did as a result of this? 
they pushed Russia right in the arms of China, who's actually our number one enemy. So how's that for international policy, NATO and the West? You just pushed Russia right into the arms of China. And these economic sanctions, they haven't hurt. All of these stats that came out early on, oh, our economic sanctions, the Russian economy is going to crater by at least 10%. Well, that didn't happen. I think their GDP for the 2022 was probably negative, 2.5%. Well, that's not 10%. That's not cratering. And you look at the ruble. The ruble is stronger now than it was before the war. And now they're coming out with excuses. Oh, you know, we didn't really want to put the Russian economy on the brink. We just wanted to hurt them. Again, changing the narrative. But they're trying. They're they're, they're looking for a narrative to get uh, off the train here. And then you have to look at globalization itself and what this war has done to globalization. I think it was Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, came out months ago and said that the Ukraine war will result in the end of globalization. So these globalists have shot themselves in the foot with this war. And right now you've got Zelensky still coming out and saying, oh, I'm not going to give up any of the uh, eastern part of Ukraine as a settlement. You know, and the eastern part is the, the Russian speaking section of Ukraine that actually identifies as being Russian more than Ukraine. Oh, before I forget, I heard a rumor that there is some secret negotiations going on. Those negotiations going on include Ukraine not joining NATO, the eastern part of Ukraine, which was recently annexed by Russia, will remain as part of Russia. Because this is what Putin has always said he wanted. Now, if you can remember before the war, NATO asked Russia, well, what do you want? Before the war even started, NATO had said, well, give us your proposal in order to avoid this. And two of the things was Russia did not want Ukraine to join NATO. And he wanted autonomy for eastern Ukraine. And NATO's response was, go pound sand. And now they're going to settle for what Putin wanted. All these lives lost, all these lives lost, and it could have been avoided. But we have bad leadership here. So we shall see. So there's a lot of signal coming out about this war's end. And I'm not sure if it's going to end this year. Probably not. But at least there's going to be a turn where people start realizing that Ukraine's not going to win. And it's going to have to pursue a peaceful settlement. And one of those things is a meeting this past week that Zelensky had with representatives of J.P. Morgan, the largest Wall Street bank in the United States, if not the world. And they signed a memo of understanding that J.P. Morgan is going to manage all the money that comes in to help Ukraine rebuild after the war. So it's a nice little package for Wall Street. They're going to go back to the United States and they're going to hire their lobbyists and they're going to, and they're going to push Congress and Biden to put this whole Marshall Plan together. Billions of dollars to help rebuild Ukraine. And guess who's going to manage it? J.P. Morgan's going to manage the money. Isn't that nice? So we've already had the defense industry profiteering from this war. And now we're going to have Wall Street getting theirs on the back end. Great for them. Bad for Ukraine. And I think maybe a, a month or two ago, uh, BlackRock also signed a memo of understanding that they would also partake in managing Ukraine's money after the war. So let's keep our eyes on this. It's going to be heavy lobbying going on in Washington to rebuild Ukraine. But frankly, we don't have the money. We've hit upon the debt ceiling. 
We have no extra money to give to anyone, but don't count Wall Street out. Money speaks to a lot of people in Congress. So we got to keep our eyes on this. Okay, I want to switch to the train wreck in East Palestine, Ohio, Trump country. Blue collar workers, blue collar neighborhoods, flyover country for the elite. And with that said, I want to switch to a clip just outlining what happened and the lack of any response. And I'll get into this later from the federal government. So let's go to the clip. It's about two minutes and then we'll come back and discuss. Hundreds of angry residents of East Palestine, Ohio, and its surrounding areas attended a town hall meeting demanding answers about the train derailment earlier this month. We all just want answers. I think that's what everybody here wants is just answers. Um, I honestly feel that the Palestine, the, the police department, the fire department, all the first responders, they don't have the answers to give us because I don't think they know. They're not getting the straight answers either. Norfolk Southern, the company that owns the train in the derailment, was due to join officials at the meeting to address the concerns of local residents, but decided to pull out of the meeting at the last moment, citing perceived threats to their workers' safety. Norfolk Southern has come under harsh criticism from government officials who laid responsibility for the disaster at its feet. Governor Mike DeWine demanded the company be held accountable and do more to help clean up the mess. This train apparently was not considered a high hazardous material train. Therefore, the railroad was not required to notify anyone here in Ohio about what was in the rail cars coming through our state. Frankly, uh, if this is true, and I'm told it's true, uh, this is absurd. Train cars were carrying at least five hazardous materials at the time of the accident wanting to prevent a catastrophic tanker failure and an explosion that could have sent deadly shrapnel up to a mile away. Officials opted to conduct a controlled burn, releasing fumes into the air. These fumes included chemicals such as vinyl chloride, which has been linked to liver damage and a rare form of liver cancer in cases of acute exposure. Many residents are concerned about the long-term health effects and whether local wildlife and water are indeed safe to consume. This is so much bigger than just it in the water. Our environment our wildlife animals, our, our farmers that have to till their soil up. Ohio Attorney General David Yost told Norfolk Southern his office is considering legal action against the rail operator. And let me tell you, this train wreck was not covered by the mainstream media. It would not have come to anyone's attention if it was not for conservative media. And this is just indicative of how the White House is responding to this. Now, two things I want to point out. The first is Pete Buttigieg. The Department of Transportation head. And on the day that this train wreck happened, and he knew about this, he was talking about how it's a great thing that more minorities will be getting contracts to rebuild our infrastructure, totally ignoring a catastrophe that happened. And I got nothing against non-white people getting construction work, as long as they're qualified. But why is this more important than people getting cancer to Buttigieg? Because he's just absent. He's, he's a, an empty suit that doesn't care about you and me, just cares about his next election. And then a day or two later, he was interviewed by one of the media outlets, and he starts throwing out statistics how, oh, well, our railways are statistically safe, and, and this is just an anomaly. Oh, really? Nothing about the poor people in East Palestine. Nothing about them possibly having to move out of their homes for good. Nothing from him. And then what you have is the total cone of silence from the White House and the Biden administration on this. Now, what happened is that they made a choice. Oh, before I forget, J.D. Vance did a good job in elevating 
this catastrophe to the public. I saw a clip of him. He was walking through one of the creeks. The creeks, the creek looked like it had a film of oil on top of it. Dead fish were all over the place in this poor creek. So what the uh, what they happened is that there was two things that happened. One is that they released some of the chemicals into a nearby creek, killing the fish, eventually landing in our water tables. And then the second thing that they did was they burned it. They burned the chemicals, causing a huge plume to cover initially 400 homes and just spreading throughout Pennsylvania, West Virginia. And right now you have silence from the EPA because according to the law, this burn, this setting on fire of these chemicals had to be approved by the EPA in the federal government. And they're silent on this. Now, the governor, DeWine, came out and said, well, you know, early on, uh, he said, oh, yeah, I, I agreed with it. And the federal government, the EPA, was all too happy to let people think that it was DeWine that approved this burn. No, it wasn't. It was the EPA, and they're silent on this. And that's what they think about the people of Ohio. They didn't vote for the Democrats. They didn't vote for Biden. They're Trump people. They're the deplorables. The hell with them. That's the message being sent out right now. And again, all I can think about is 9-11 and when Chrissy Todd Whitman, head of the EPA at the time, was telling everybody that Ground Zero was safe when it wasn't safe. And I'm sure that's in the back of a lot of people's minds when they hear from government officials say, oh, it's safe to go back. Go back to your homes. Drink the water. It's safe. They do not believe you. And then I hear horror stories about representatives from Norfolk going to people's homes saying, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll test your home for you to see if there's any carcinogens in here. But you've got to sign this document first that says you won't sue Norfolk. And this is how these people think. And this is what these people think about the people of East Palestine, the deplorables. They don't, they don't matter. Get them to sign anything. So where are we now? We've got the governor's office and the EPA, I guess, are pointing fingers at each other. The EPA uh, is just letting DeWine hang out there because he made the first comment about he agreed with the burn, whereas it wasn't his decision. The decision is with the EPA and the federal government. And we want to know who made that decision. And I don't care about everybody pointing their fingers at each other. These people, these residents, need to be moved out of there right away because they don't feel safe. And if we can send $100 billion to Ukraine, we can certainly find something for American people. But guess what? DeWine called FEMA. FEMA says, nope, we're not helping you. And they gave some bureaucratic readers in. Oh, you don't meet the criteria. Well, guess what? If you had Biden on board with this, FEMA would have moved. They would have moved on helping the people of Palestine, East Palestine. But these people can't wait. They need money right now. They need a tranche of money to either move them out of their houses, buy their homes, relocate them, all on the government's dime. And if the government wants to go after the train company that did this, let them do that. But these poor people can't wait. Where are they going to live? They're not millionaires. They can't afford to live in a hotel for three years. They can't move in with their aunt or uncle that live 100 miles away because they have jobs to go to. So the federal government has an obligation right now to take care of these people and throw as much money as you can at it. There's plenty of money sitting around. Take it from take it for the money that was earmarked for Ukraine. Take a billion dollars out of it to start. What's one billion out of 100 billion? Let's use it for our people. So we shall see. Okay, CPI came in this week, and it came in hotter than expected, as well as the PPI, wholesale prices. So, and before I get into the CPI numbers, 
to, to these people, it's all about the story. Everything's all about the story. And since January, there was, there's been a run-up in the stock market because Wall Street is creating this narrative that the Fed is going to eventually cut rates later in the year, and there's no indication of that. But they're sticking to that narrative, and they artificially ran the market up. And with these most recent CPI numbers that came out, these inflation numbers that came out, uh, the reality is, is that inflation is here. The Fed's going to attack inflation. Uh, they're not going to drop rates later this year. And this whole narrative that you're creating is just fake. And again, it just goes with this, the world that we're living in today with our institutions. It's just about a story, whether it's a story about getting out of Ukraine, whether it's a story about running up the stock market, it's all about the story. It's not about reality. And this can only go on for so long. So in the market, we've had three straight down weeks in stocks uh, because uh, reality is kind of setting in. So with that said, let's go to the CPI number. Uh, let's see. Eggs. Eggs are up 70% year over year. That's at the top of the list for the past three or four months. Then we have butter and margarine up 32% year over year. Fuel oil up 27% year over year. Utilities 26% year over year. Airfare, 25%. Motor vehicle repairs, up 23%. Frozen vegetables, up 18%. Cereals and bakery products, up 15%. Pet food, up 15%. Motor vehicle insurance, up 14% year over year. Electricity is up 12%. Milk's up 11%. Chicken, chicken's up 10.5%. Food away from home, I guess that's eating out, 8.2%. Okay, let's take a look at the numbers that have dropped year over year. Okay, beef steaks, down 3%. Bacon, bacon's down almost 4% year over year. Appliances, major appliances, stoves, refrigerators, down 4%. Women's dresses, down 4.2%. I guess our trans community would be happy about that. Computers are down 6.2%. Used car and trucks are down 11.6%. And televisions, again, televisions top the list as far as biggest reduction in costs, down 13.2%. So that's where we are. As they say, inflation is going to be sticky. Fed is committed to raising rates until inflation comes under control. One thing I want to point out, though, is that the Fed is looking at driving two things, housing and uh, salaries down in order to be inflation. And one of the things that I've noticed is that most, a lot of the jobs that have been created and coming up in our uh, employment reports are on the low end, you know, in uh, the service sectors, hotels, uh, restaurants. You, you've seen an increase in, in employment here in, in these areas. And this is what the Fed's targeting. So the people that have uh, on the lower end they're making too much, according to the Fed, and they've got to drive that down, and they're driving that down by raising rates. And this coincides with this influx of illegal aliens that we have coming over a border. Because you got you got to understand is that this is this this helps the Wall Streeters, these illegal aliens coming in and taking jobs on the low end of the pay scale from people that new immigrants, new legal immigrants that have been working, and it drives down their wages. You know, and these institutions like the Chamber of Commerce, the Club for Growth, these are all open border people. They want to drive these wages down on the low end. 
Keep them going up on the top end, but attack the low end. So it's a nice little package right uh, right now for those that want to drive down wages for people on the low end. And the other thing with these reports that are coming out, you know, there was a big report that said 571,000 new jobs were created um, last month. And if you took a look at it, most of them were created on the lower end, or many of them, a significant amount of uh, those jobs were created in the lower end. And if you look closely at the data, there were people that were getting second jobs that were showing up in this data. So it's not, you know, it, it, it's people that, it's people on the lower end that are looking to get a second job because of inflation being so high. And, it, and again, this is what the Fed is targeting, the salaries of people on the lower end of the pay scale. And this is what the Chamber of Commerce is rooting for too because they want to see more and more illegal aliens come in here to take the jobs and drive down wages for people on the lower end of the scale. So we'll see what happens with it. I'm not sure if they're going to be successful as far as targeting people on the lower end, but we shall see. And quite frankly, no one has the answer right now because we're in such uncharted territory right now as far as the stock market. We're unwinding artificially low rates that we've had since 2008. No one knows how to deal with earnings. Earnings are going down. A lot of people on Wall Street, all they know is this thing called buying the dip. Always buy when stocks go down. Why? Well, I don't know. Just do it. Nothing about fundamentals. Nothing about whether it's a valid corporation, a valid business model. But anyway, I digress. That's where we are. Inflation's still high. Eggs are at the top of the list. Televisions are at the bottom of the list. And uh, we'll go over this next month. Now, I just want to talk a couple of minutes about Elon Musk. And then I want to go to a clip of his. Musk is not a story guy. He's not a narrative guy. He likes to keep things real, for lack of a better word. And look, I'm not a super fan of his. He's got Chinese ties, but he he does good thing. I just want to play a clip of his. Oh, before I forget, when, um, there was a, a story that came out, and I, I forgot who quoted him or who was being quoted about him. And he said an interesting thing. He said, look, I've got no problem with Tesla going bankrupt if there's another car out there that's better than my car. And that was really interesting. Most people would try to keep a car alive, uh, even if it wasn't that good. They would just want to keep a company alive just to make money. But, you know, Tesla, uh, Musk wants to put the very best electric car out there. And I'm not saying to buy electric cars. I don't think uh, the country can handle entirely electric cars. And I think Musk will tell you the same thing. But I, I like that mindset. He's got no problem going bankrupt or having Tesla go bankrupt. There's a better product out there. Now, that's capitalism, and he purely accepts it. But what the clip I want to talk about with Musk is Musk, Musk was invited to speak at the World Government Summit. And again, this is a globalist institution. Uh, it's not the World Economic Forum, but it's similar to the World Economic Forum. Uh, they had Klaus Schwab speaking there earlier. Um, and then uh, they had a Zoom meeting with Musk. And so he addressed the, uh, the, the crowd remotely. And I'm not sure if he's going to get <laughs> invited back after listening to this clip. So let's go to this clip and then we'll come back and discuss because essentially <laughs> Musk is telling him is that, hey, guys, wait, you guys are a bunch of globalists, but I'm not sure that's the best thing for the world. 
So again, let's go to the clip and then we'll come back and discuss. I know this is called the World Government Summit, um, but um, I think we should be maybe a little bit concerned about uh, actually becoming too much of a single world government. Um, if, if I may say that we want to avoid creating a civilizational risk by having, um, frankly, this may sound a little odd, too much cooperation between governments. Um, you know, if you know, if you look at say the, at history and the rise and fall of civilizations. Um, that the really all throughout history, civilizations have risen and fallen, but it hasn't meant the doom of humanity as a whole because there have been, there've been all these separate civilizations that were separated by great distances. And so, so I think we want to be a little bit cautious about uh, being too much of a, world, of a single uh, civilization because if we are too much of a single civilization, then if, if we're, if the, whole, the whole thing may collapse. Um, I'm not, obviously not suggesting war or anything like that, but I think we want to be a little bit wary of actually cooperating too much. It sounds a little odd, but um, but we, we just we, we want to have some amount of civilizational diversity, such that if uh, if something does go wrong with some part of civilization, that the whole thing doesn't collapse uh, and 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 you know humanity keeps moving forward. And when you think about it, it makes so much sense. And it's so simple. Now you talk to stock people, they say, oh, you have to diversify your portfolio. Or you hear the phrase, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Well, there's a reason for that. And Musk is making the point. Well, you don't want to do that with your government because there's huge risks with having one single government. Because if there's one screw up, the entire civilization collapses. So I think he used the term civilizational collapse. But he's right. So I want to see if he gets invited back next year. So let's talk about some more balloons. And I think in my last episode, I had said what's going to happen. And this is happening right now. Our military is going to go overboard the other way. They tweaked their radar to pick up anything. And they sent planes up to shoot it down just for the sake of shooting it down. And that's a typical bureaucratic response to anything when they are embarrassed. So with that said, I want to play a clip, and this is from Joe Biden, and he's just explaining that they shot down three other balloons. And what I find interesting is he says that, well, we shot down the three other balloons. We don't know where they are. We don't know much about them, but we're, no, we're sure they're not Chinese. How, how, how do you know that? Well, let you take a look at them. So let's just go to the clip, and uh, then we'll come back and discuss our military and the Canadian military are seeking to recover the debris so we can learn more about these three objects. Our intelligence community is still assessing all three incidences. They're reporting to me daily and will continue their urgent efforts to do so, and I will communicate that to the Congress. We don't yet know exactly what these three objects were, but nothing, nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance vehicles from other, any other country. Now, what really gets me is that there's a report that one of the balloons that they shot down was a $15 balloon from some local balloon club in Illinois. And so they spent, they shot a $12 balloon, a $15 balloon down with a $400,000 Sidewinder missile. 
Well, that's a great use of funds. But again, this is what government does when it's embarrassed. It wastes more money. It goes overboard. It overcompensates and makes ridiculous mistakes like this. Now, there was a subsequent interview this week where Biden just showed continued weakness. And he had mentioned in the uh, interview that he, he doesn't want conflict with China. He wants competition. And that's going to be interpreted the wrong way by China. It's going to be interpreted as weakness. You add in the whole first Chinese balloon fiasco and then the subsequent three takedowns. It really does not put us in a good light in China's eyes. And we need to be showing strength right now rather than weakness. And with that said, I just want to make, you know, I thought it was irresponsible for the head of NORAD, the the general from NORAD. I I forgot what his name is. And he wasn't clear. Somebody asked him, well, is it extraterrestrial? And he wasn't clear about whether they were extraterrestrial or not. And he gave the impression that, oh, maybe they're from out of space. Maybe, Maybe they're aliens. And I thought that should have been cleared up. You know, I just think that was uh, not good communications or amateur hour by NORAD. Now, part of me wanted it to be aliens because I would have felt much safer knowing that our F-22s can take down an alien flying saucer. So we don't need to worry about an invasion from Mars if we can do this really easy. But we shall see. So the special grand jury from Georgia came back with its report. And for those of you who forget, uh, remember when uh, Donald Trump called the Secretary of State Raffensperger from Georgia and said, listen, all I need is just to find 11,000 votes. And Raffensperger taped that. And of course, it was taken out of context because it's Donald Trump. And they uh, called a special grand jury to investigate Donald Trump, and I guess some other people surrounding the, the entire issue with the 2020 election. And apparently they were also going to look into whether there was uh, uh, voting fraud, election fraud. And make a long story short, they came back with their report. And you know what they got? Well, we found that some people may have perjured themselves. And that's it. That's, that's essentially the crux of their report. After all this, Donald Trump's going to jail. Donald Trump's going to get indicted. This special grand jury comes back and says, well, some people may have perjured themselves. Now, we don't know who, but I wouldn't be surprised if somebody tries to pursue a a perjury charge against uh, somebody in the Trump administration. Maybe Donald Trump. He'll beat that too. But that's all they got. That's like the lowest of the low. And then they were talking about election fraud. They said that, oh, there wasn't significant election fraud, but there were some. And why didn't they go more into more detail about that? That's what I want to know. So again, Donald Trump beats another attack. And think about all the wasted taxpayer money on this. But this is the problem. When you have political hacks in, certain, in these key positions, they waste your money, they politicize everything, and look what you get. A maybe perjury. Did George Soros just endorse Ron DeSantis? Now, I'm going to play a clip. You're going to have to make this judgment on your own. But the following clip is not good for Ron DeSantis. 
lot of people are interpreting as, as an endorsement, but even it's not a full-throated endorsement. George Soros doesn't say anything that he doesn't want. So essentially, he wants DeSantis to come out of the Republican primary because it's better for the Democrats. So let me play this clip. You may you be the judge, but this is not good for DeSantis. For 2024, it is that Trump and Governor DeSantis of Florida will slug it out for the Republican nomination. Trump has turned into a pitiful figure, continually bemoaning his loss in 2020. Big Republican donors are abandoning him in droves. DeSantis is shrewd, ruthless, and ambitious. He is likely to be a Republican candidate. I don't know. It's just not good for DeSantis when the most evil person in the world is saying nice things about you. So we shall see. Okay, one last thing before I go. Jim Jordan, the head of the Government Weaponization Committee, has subpoenaed the CEOs of Google, Amazon, Apple, Meta, and Microsoft to come in and talk about relating to the moderation, deletion, suppression, restriction, or reduced circulation of content to develop effective legislation such as the possible enactment of new statutory limits on the executive branch's ability to work with big tech to restrict the circulation of content and deplatform users, the Committee on the Judiciary must first understand how and to what extent the executive branch coerced and colluded with companies and other intermediaries to censor speech. And again, that's good news. And thank you so much, Jim Jordan. And Thank you to you for listening. You have a good week, and I will talk to you next Saturday.